Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live, the program that brings you together with Christian ministry leaders, authors, and pastors to discuss major issues of our day. I'm Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and I thank you for joining with us today as we seek to encourage and equip followers of Jesus Christ to show His heart and mind in all that we do. We have a technologist, theologian, software developer, author, and creator of tools used by ministries worldwide, as well as by Apple, Microsoft, Anheuser-Busch, and the Department of Defense. He's now executive director of online ministry and web support for a major seminary and has written a thoughtful book leading us to think biblically about the complexity of technology in our lives, understanding what God's Word says about technology, and maybe even managing social media in a way that honors God. Maybe. So stay with us. This is a topic which impacts us all in so many ways. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to hear podcasts of our past radio programs on topics including faith and work, science and art, fighting human trafficking, the spiritual formation of C.S. Lewis, and more. Our guests have included Oz Guinness, Andy Crouch, Mayor Abby Taylor of San Antonio, Jeff Van Duzer, and others who are leaders in aspects of faith and culture. The website also offers audio and video from our past conferences and seminars on many faith and culture topics, the works of C.S. Lewis, and more, with Alistair McGrath, Walter Kaiser, Dallas Willard, and other leading Christian authors. Our radio programs are available on iTunes as Hill Country Institute Live. The program is supported by donations, and you can donate to support this program at hillcountryinstitute.org or by calling 512-680-7993. 512-680-7993. For donations over $100, we have a copy of our featured guest book, From the Garden to the City, The Redeeming Power and Corrupting Power of Technology. Visit hillcountryinstitute.org for donations, and please contact us if you would like to sponsor this program. Now let's welcome our special guest, John Dyer. John, thank you for being with us today. It's a great honor and a delight to welcome you to our program. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. John, you've you've uh, you've got so many uh, pieces of your life. You've 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 been in technology. You're you're you've worked in a seminary. Uh, you know, you, we we've got a, a tremendous infrastructure in the in the area for uh, for software for development of new companies. We've got the Southwest Research Center. We've got incubators and venture capital firms. We've got Dell and Samsung and Rat Space, and you know, I could just go on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So, so just to identify with the tech people in our audience, you know, you've developed tools for, for many major corporations. So what's it like to, to develop tools for, say, a secular company and then to be developing tools in the context of a seminary or a ministry? Hmm. Well, I got my start in the late 90s or early 2000s just doing some web development because at the time you didn't have to have a lot of skill and you could just get a job. So I hadn't had any formal education. I just jumped into it. So I started out doing things for you know insurance companies and, and various uh, whoever would call and, and needed some kind of work. And eventually I got into um, developing a lot of the software as open source. So if, if I or one of the companies I was working for was building a tool, we'd create it in a way that we were sharing it with the rest of the Internet community for people to use. And then we'd, we'd find out, you know, that, say, Microsoft or Apple or Harley-Davidson or one of them had, had begun to use it. And so just as an example of that, um, once I was working at Dallas Theological Seminary, we started developing some video software for our distance ed students and decided to open source that software. And then that got picked up by um, WordPress, which runs probably about a quarter of the Internet now. So it's pretty exciting to see something that you made um, all of a sudden show up in a quarter of the Internet. That's, that's a really exciting and fun feeling. It's also terrifying 
terrifying because it means that <laughs> if you mess up something or if you leave a security hole, you're, you're really affecting other people's lives. So it's exciting and terrifying at the same time. Oh, that's that's interesting. I've, I've sent out emails that I wish I hadn't sent. Um, so uh, <laughs> that's a much smaller scale problem, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, well John, you, you've I'm not sure how to even uh, explain how without – going into our conversation. But for the listener, John has uh, spent a lot of time thinking about technology uh, from a theological sense and a practical sense of how we actually live our lives. And so uh, I'm hopeful that today we can talk some about how Scripture speaks mm-hmm. about technology and how we actually apply it. But, it. but it seems, John, from reading your book, From the Garden to the City, uh, that it all started for you in some way when one day in class a seminary professor mm-hmm. said, technology's not neutral and what did what did that set off in you how did how did that impact your thinking yeah, I think I think I had always thought that as long as I'm using technology for good as long as I'm taking all these great things that are being developed out there and converting them to some use that would benefit the kingdom of God. That's really all I needed to think about. So if I was building a website for the Bible and not for some type of trashy thing, that that was pretty much it, just those moral categories. So I thought the technology itself is just sort of a neutral conduit, and I can put good things through it, and as long as I avoid putting bad things through it, that's all that matters. So this professor says one of the most dangerous things you can believe is that technology is neutral, and that really questioned my kind of entire identity as a software developer and technology worker. And unfortunately, he got sick the next uh, the rest of the semester, and so I wasn't able to ask him about that, so I had to go out there and read. And what I found was that the perspective I had was kind of at one end of the spectrum, where we often call this instrumentalism, and that is that, that all technology, again, is, is just neutral, and all that matters is how you use it. Well, on the other side of it is this view that you might call determinism, where technology is this scary dominant force that takes over our lives and that controls us and that we have no control over it. But as, as, as much as that doesn't sound quite right, it does begin to recognize that when we use technology, something happens to us at the same time. And so I've tried to kind of come to a little bit more of a position in the middle there where I'm recognizing that I, I do have choices in how I use technology, but I also recognize at the same time that when I use it, that it has a shaping power on, on me and the people around me at the same time. Sure. Yeah. It, uh, it seems that uh, our... Our very brain is impacted by by the technology. I've, I've read the term Google Brain, and mm-hmm. uh, you know how do how do you think our constant use of reading short articles versus books mm-hmm. has, is impacting us? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the topic that we are most concerned with right now probably is more of our Internet-enabled technologies, our cell phones, all of those things. But I think it's almost easier to think about physical technologies to begin with and think about the way that they can shape us as a way of getting into um, talking about electronic ones. And part of this is that when most of us hear the word technology, um, we usually think about all the things that were invented after we were born. So all the things before we were born, we don't even really think of as technology. So all of us were born after the age of the airplane and the automobile and electricity. So we, we sometimes ignore those things and how they shape us. But if we think of something really simple like a shovel, 
example I often give is is that you know you can use it for good ends or bad ends. So you could use it to um, to build a church, or you could use it to you know go out and kill somebody and bury them, or something like that. Um, but either way, whether we're using it for morally good or morally bad purposes, at the end of the day, our hands get you know blisters on them, and those turn into calluses. And so we're changed just in the act of using any tool, like like a shovel. And so if that's true of a physical tool, it's also going to be true of electronic ones, that the more we use something, our body and our mind will adapt to it and to begin to um, make certain changes in it to get better or worse at certain skills. Well, we, we tend to think of technology as uh, something that's, that's fairly recent, as you, as you said, probably, mm-hmm. probably something that's happened since we were born. But you, in the book, you also outline how technology has has had different periods of, of mm. growth and what's happened then. And I think it, just to help frame the discussion, yeah, talk, mm. talk, if you would, talk a little bit about those and how we get to where we are today. Yeah, um, I mean, most um, most thinkers would begin to look back at you know early tool usages with uh, early humans, and um, but then one of the most powerful ones I think that you see in history is the invention of writing. So that seems like such an obvious thing to us that it's it seems like it's almost always existed, but it really isn't until maybe the three thousand or two thousand BC where you start getting this idea of an alphabet, and um, really it doesn't come in until around maybe fifteen hundred BC. So Believe it or not, when, when God is writing the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets in Hebrew, that's a pretty new technology at the time to be able to even do that. So that begins to shift things in the ways that people operated where, without writing, everything that people know is just in their minds. And so that means that the oldest person in the room is, by default, the person with kind of the, the biggest hard drive, right? They know the most things, so you're naturally going to go to them as the authority. But with writing coming in, you suddenly have this, this shift where someone who has the skill of reading and writing becomes more valuable than even this, the person with more experience and age. Um, and we could walk through all different kinds of eras and different technologies, but certainly one that is often pointed to as well is, is the printing press in the 1450s by Gutenberg, that that was able to set off you know, the scientific revolution, that was able to set off um, democracy, where, where the kings and the monarchs that, that used to rule were sort of replaced by the um, by people that people chose, and also that um, the, the emergence of Protestantism sort of comes out of that as well. Um, and I think then the next probably major movement would be somewhere in the 1750s where you start to talk about the Industrial Revolution. And you start to see machines that really can do something different to the earth. And you start to hear thinkers talking about um, one day we'll have trouble-free lives and we'll be able to invent things that will make our lives so much easier. And then, of course, in the 20th century, we have all of the you know electronic gadgets, um, you know, radio and television and now computers. But I, th- I think there are sometimes ones that we don't um, don't think of as doing much to us. But one of those uh, really, really powerful ones, I think, was just the light bulb. So it doesn't communicate anything to us. But the light bulb um, really changed a lot of the way that society worked. And I think in the, in the Austin area, if you maybe had heard this story Back in the 1880s, there was a, a serial killer in the Austin area that I think it was called the Servant Girl Annihilator. Mm-hmm. And what they did in, in the city of Austin was install some of the very first big tower lights 
that um, uh, I think in the 1890s that began to make the night more uh, or less scary and less available for doing you know dark deeds there. Sure. And so eventually that that went away. And on the spiritual level, the interesting thing was that when the Book of Common Prayer was uh, revised in the early 1900s, they actually took out most of the prayers that referred to uh, people asking God to help them get through the darkness of the night. Mm-hmm. Because that that problem had been overcome by technology, and so people felt like it was no longer something for which they needed to ask God to help them with, because technology had solved it. So I, I say that just because um, we forget that some of these older technologies, like light bulbs, that we just think of as as always being there, have radically shaped our lives. Sure, and uh, some of those moon towers in in Austin are still here. So uh, yeah, famously in the Dazed and Confused movie, right? That that was the big big scene in sure. there. Sure, yeah, absolutely, and. Uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've thought about what one technology that we take for granted that really facilitates so much of our movement, and that's tires. Just the way mm. a tire can absorb things, uh, mm. it's really a marvel, and, and you just don't even think about it. So uh, yeah. t- technology is interwoven into every aspect of our life, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I think one one of the other ways that has been helpful to think about technology is that almost all of them extend some natural function of us. So it seems as though God made us with these incredible minds where we can create wonderful things and they make us stronger in certain areas. But at the same time, as we get stronger in that area with the technology, sometimes our natural ability gets weaker. So I, I know when I was a, a kid, I knew a lot of telephone numbers, just as an example. And now I think I know maybe two numbers because my phone knows all of them. Sure. And so anytime we, we get something new, um, sometimes we lose something old at the same time. Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's an adaption, and that adaption may take something away. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Indeed. Well, you, you frame the discussion of faith and technology uh, in terms of what theologians usually call creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Mm-hmm. But, but you change the terms a bit. You use reflection. Rebellion, redemption, uh, and restoration. Now, now we're, we're not dealing with anything less than the entire history of mankind from a biblical perspective, but so we won't go to all the details. But, but you know, why is this overarching story important, um, and how does it help us to think about technology? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that most of us, again, we we think of technology such in in moral terms. So we're concerned, and rightly concerned, with the abuses of technology, like pornography and cyberbullying and all of that. But I think sometimes it, it it misses what's going on in Scripture and and even the image of God that's in us. So if we look back at, you know, just the opening chapters of Genesis and God telling humanity to go out and to explore to to uh, fulfill and to keep and to cultivate the garden, um, I think he's assuming that we are going to take what he's made and to make something more out of it. That It's almost like he's dumped out a box of Legos on the floor and said, make something amazing out of this. So I think from the very beginning, you know, in, in Genesis 1-1, the first thing we see of God is that he creates, right? And that then we see that we're in his image. And so um, theologians have written quite a bit about the image of God, but I think at least one part of that is our, our uh, creativity and our ability to make new things, just to explore the grandeur of God's creation. 
with microscopes and telescopes and all of those things. So there, from that very beginning, that is there. Um, and of course, when sin enters the world, and, and that's the fun part about um, you know the Apple computer company that they use that logo of the bitten apple as kind of our symbol of hope and destruction at the same time. Mm-hmm. But when you know when when sin comes into the world, it certainly complicates things, and it means that people will use technology for evil, or that even when they intend it to be good, that it can um, sometimes have unintended consequences. And yet, I think even when God is uh, labeling the curses on, on Adam and Eve and on, on the ground and saying that it's going to be difficult, I think he's opening up avenues for us to begin using our creativity to overcome that. And even when Adam and Eve create their first thing, which is the, the clothing that they create, God doesn't condemn that, but he actually shows them a better way, kind of a, a more high-tech way to make better clothing, saying this is going to be part of what you're going to need to do in the world. Um, and then I think if we look forward all the way to the end of the story, to that restoration, you know, we don't die and go up to heaven as little people that play harps on clouds, but rather God remakes a new heavens and a new earth, and it's full of things that humans have made, like roads and trumpets and banners, and and who knows what else will be there, but it's certainly full of human creativity, and and, and someone has to make the throne for Jesus to sit on, right? So it's full of all these things, so that the world that we are literally sitting in and, and existing in now, that same world will be there in some glorified state, but it isn't a world where there is no human creativity. So it runs all the way through, even with that taintedness of sin. It's there from the beginning, and it's there at the end. Well, one one thing that strikes me is that um, before the fall, God had creativity uh, and, and tending, you know, uh, mm-hmm. naming the animals and tending the garden mm-hmm. built into the DNA of, of Adam and Eve. So, mm-hmm. so technology and and work is not just a result of the fall, is it? No, no. I mean, I think that's sometimes a claim, and you, and you see that sometimes in writers on technology. You know, there's some great ones like Neil Postman and Jacques Ellul, and but sometimes they seem to think that, you know, technology is a result of human hubris or something that God didn't intend. But yeah, I think especially the, the naming of the animals where Adam is creating language, and that's such a powerful thing that, that shows us things about uh, about creatures that we um, uh, that shapes the way that we see the world. And also today, the way that we continue to use language it, it has the power to sort of separate subcultures or to bring people together, depending on how we choose to use language. So I think God is deeply interested in that creativity. And again, even after the fall, it seems like God is continuing to validate that there, both with um, Adam and Eve's creation of clothes, and then when you get to Genesis 4, with, with, with even with Cain, and being this guy who is trying to get as far away from God as he can, that still that image of God seems to bubble forth and just burst out. And so you see the first creation of tools and agriculture and music and, and all of these wonderful things that I think God deeply enjoys in, in his creations, whether or not they are intending to do it for his glory, it still honors him as image bearers. Yeah, no matter how hard you try, you're still made in the image of God, aren't you? <laughs> That's right. It's, a, it's an astounding thing. I think an uh, American theologian went over to meet Hitler, and, and when he came back, he said something to the effect of, what, well, somebody asked him, what did you see? I said, I saw the image of God. And so mm-hmm. it's there, even if it's uh, more submerged. Well, in, in the... Um, story of Adam and Eve with the fig leaves God mm. added on to what they had already created so in, in a sense he will he he would seem to want to bless our efforts uh, at creating new technologies 
I think so. I think that that's a, an open door for them to begin to say some of the curses of the world that we can be we can begin to use technology to at least temporarily overcome. And I think this is the the catch is that we know technology can never fully save us, right? And I think sometimes the rhetoric that comes out of um, those who are maybe not believers who are using technology, they'll often talk about how this technology can save us from this. Now, we as believers, I think we know that that, that will not ever ultimately save us. They won't That won't affect our souls. And yet I think it can also give us a, a hopeful kind of foretaste of the kingdom. I I listened to a talk of N.T. Wright talking to um, a, a doctors, and he was talking about how, you know, when Jesus says that the, that the blind would be able to see and the deaf would be able to hear, that new medical technology is, is making that possible, and it's such a, a beautiful glimpse of the future. Mm. And yet at the same time, he was saying that we hope that your entire profession goes away in the new heavens and new earth, right? Yeah. We don't want to have uh, any tears. So I think every time we see a technology that excites us, I think in, in one way that can that can give us just a little glimpse of the image of God, of, of, of a partial redemption, but it can also make us long for that, that hope of Jesus returning where we wouldn't need... Um, some of the technologies that we have today. Well, and, and technology can lead us in a, in a uh, maybe a stronger uh, negative direction, part of the corrupting influence I think you, you reference in the title of the book. At the Tower of Babel, uh, man, man, what was man doing there? What, what, what was man's reaction to God and perhaps getting away from God? And what did God do with that? Yeah, it seems like there's this impulse both in Cain's building the first city and also in the Tower of Babel of trying to sort of build this anti-garden, right, where if the garden, humanity's kind of in, in a relationship with God and with one another, they want to build this alternate world of themselves where they kind of go up and are, and are able to ascend themselves. So they sort of miss that subtle distinction there where technology can certainly help us, it can honor God, but it can't replace God. And I think that's sometimes our tendency is to make it become a kind of idol, not a literal idol with a statue and a little guy, but it can become an idol in the sense that it replaces God's significance in our lives. And I think we have that today in the way that we build um, our own sort of social media presence is as wonderful and helpful as that can be. It's a chance to build something in our own image and to sort of, as Augustine calls it, the encouragement of the soul toward the self mm. to, to serve who we are. <clears throat> Yeah, that's a that's that just seems like it's such an ongoing challenge. You mm-hmm. you want to do good. You want to eliminate or or, or limit poverty. You want to cure mm-hmm. disease, and yet we get to a point where we think of ourselves as being invincible. And if we could avoid death, we would. So, uh, where where how do you how do you discern those lines? What what process do you think of to do that? Yeah, and I think in our in our own personal lives as believers. I think it's a little bit easier to be able to talk about those things and make sure that we have Christ as our preeminent hope and that these temporary hopes of of technology are are that that are temporary, even if we still value them and and the way that medicine can overcome some of our burdens. I think when we are um, out in the public square and talking about um, issues of of the end of life and, and how care would be there, that's where there's some, some deep sensitivity there to recognize that people are coming from different, um, different value systems about the nature of life, um, the nature of death. 
and what's valuable. And I think this brings into the general discussion that all technology has in it built in a built-in value system. So every technology is going to value certain directions or certain things. And I think as believers, it's helpful for us to recognize what those values are and when they align with, I think, the kingdom of God and maybe when they don't. Mm-hmm. And to be able to have those discussions internally among um, our believing friends so that when we're in the public square, we're aware of, of all the things that are going on behind the scenes. Yeah, the behind the scenes sense of technology is so important, isn't it? Because, you know, I can I can spend hours uh, on the Internet and not even realize I did uh, with a with a compulsion for information. Uh, and there are other compulsions that are even worse, but but they're probably no less addictive. So how do we uh, think about that? I guess there's one in one sense, it's doing it on our own. In other sense, it's doing it in community, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think one one of the tendencies of a lot of modern technology is it's very individualized and built for you. So, you know, if we think about our phones, um, they all look about the same, but then inside of them, you know, we rearrange the apps the way we want, and everything is really customized to what what we want. And I think that's why there's the entire... um, you know, industry of phone covers so people can feel like it's personalized. And same thing with our computers. So I think one of the um, one of the things that we need to do as as believers who um, value uh, community uh, there is is to think about how to use technology in a way that that we're talking with one another about it, and that we're asking, say, our friends or maybe our spouses or our parents or our children, what do you see in me when I'm using a phone? And I, um, for example, have small children; it's who are six and eight. And so I'm thinking a lot about what I'm modeling to them because they, you know, don't yet have phones or computers of their own. But they're, I know that they're watching me and watching the way that I use a phone um, and the way that I might shut them out at times or, or bring them in. So I think all of those other things beyond just the um, the moral things that are obvious on the phone, there's a lot more uh, subtle inner human behaviors that are going on with, with most of our modern technology. And um, if we think about it just in terms of our personal relationship, Relationship with technology, we may miss some of the things that we want to talk about as as a culture, whether that's um, within our our home or where we live, in our workspace, and also in our in our worship communities. Sure. Well, John, we, we're getting to the point where we need to take a brief break. So uh, let's continue on, on that uh, on that thought in our in our second half of the program. If you're listening today, this is Hill Country Institute Live. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen to past programs, which are also available on iTunes as Hill Country Institute Live. We also ask for your help in supporting this program financially since the radio stations like to be paid for their airtime. Please visit hillcountryinstitute.org to make donations and let us know if you'd like to sponsor this program on your local radio station. You can reach us at 512-680-7993 or donate online at hillcountryinstitute.org. For donations over $100, we have copies of John Dyer's book, From the Garden to the City, the redeeming and corrupting power of technology. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with more of Hill Country Institute Live. <laughs> 